You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Eater's Digest, a show about all things food and dining. I'm Amanda Clute, editor-in-chief of Eater. And I am Daniel Janine, uh, producer at Eater. Uh, Amanda, we've had two major cities now introduce, reintroduce indoor dining, um, New York and San Francisco starting basically last night. Uh, so how are you feeling about it? I feel okay about it. I'm, I'm interested to watch how this goes. I mean, indoor dining has been available in much of the country. So, and in New York, much of the state and Long Island, it's New York city is like the last to go. So I'm in Canada. Yeah. Yeah. I'm interested to see how it all plays out, if people are going to do it or not, how restaurants are adapting their mm. dining rooms for it. Interestingly, Daniel, I sent out a newsletter last week. As you know, I write a weekly newsletter. And I was asking people just how they feel about outdoor dining, indoor dining. And I was kind of surprised I shouldn't be. Like what? Just a lot of trepidation out there. As you mentioned last week, our readership is very specific in that they are more careful because we tend to be careful. But like a lot of people, especially doctors, not surprisingly, again, but uh, just like absolutely not, not going to do it, <laughs> not going to go there. So many people are just not ready. So it will be interesting to see in San Francisco and New York and then in other cities as they open up what people are actually going to do. One thing I was noticing in the responses I got to my newsletter, and it kind of prompted the newsletter in the first place, was this idea that there is no right answer in this moment, but everyone feels like they have the right answer. You know, like everyone who wrote into me was very much like, absolutely not, or absolutely yes, but no one is responding. I'm just not sure, and I'm I'm open to being convinced otherwise, you know? There was also an interesting piece by Pete Wells this week where he was like the first half of the article was talking to restaurateurs and talking to people who have been on coronavirus task forces and other kinds of experts about how reopening is actually going to be fine. And the second half of the article was talking to all these scientists who were like, absolutely not. It's just not safe. Like Fauci types who are like, I'm never going to go eat inside until this is over. And it's just like wild that there is no real quote unquote right path. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, I think one way that you can start to parse that kind of thing apart, though, is a co like a reopening task force person is more concerned with the economy and more concerned with restaurants getting back on their feet. And a scientist is not weighing the impact to the restaurants themselves. Right. right. So like, yeah. yeah, you know, I mean, if you ask a scientist, should I ever be in an, in a, in a small room with someone and, you know, neither of us have had the virus and we don't know where the other person has been, they're of course going to say no. Right. But like people are seeing yeah. each other. So it's, there's again, I mean, yeah, that they are correct. I mean, we should not be in the same room as anyone else until there's a vaccine or until we've 
perfected scientific intervention in some way. But also it's a much more nuanced discussion. And not to mention in New York, especially a lot of people have had the virus. A lot of people in the hospitality industry have had the virus. And, uh, you know, it is not for us to say if these businesses are reopening to be hard and fast and say, no, you should not reopen. Right. Like everyone should be making their own decisions about everything. And uh, that's why we're here to. uh the, the wallow around in it and see if yeah. we can add some context to a complicated well, I discussion. Think one thing as a diner that is, is very just selfish. My, one of my big concerns is like, mm-hmm. will the staff judge me and think I'm an asshole? Because like right. I, as I feel relatively comfortable. Like I think I will go and eat indoors at some point between now and March, but I do want to know, mm-hmm. will the staff secretly hate me? And I was asking yeah. one restaurateur about it who's open for indoor dining. He's like, of course not. They just love that you're there and we have so many safety protocols in place and like, please go support. And then I ran into another one right. who was like, eh, yeah, don't, yeah, maybe they will. And then one of the newsletter responses I got was this fine dining chef who says he resents yeah. every single diner in his restaurant and thinks it's absurd that they're dining out and he would never dine out right now. People are really all yeah. over the map right now. People are so, some people are so excited about the ways that they've adapted their restaurants to make them safer. Some people are so excited about being able to offer hospitality. Some people are so excited about like the potential to actually make some friggin' yeah. money again. Ugh, what a what mess. A mess. <laughs> so today we are bringing on uh, regular Eater contributor, Gary He, uh, photojournalist, one of, you know, I would say a guy leading the charge of getting the on ground reporting in mm-hmm. New York City's reopening and throughout COVID. Uh, he went to La Den last night, you know, because. Yeah. yeah, I'm so excited to hear how it went. Also, he wrote this big story for Eater that I love just about air filtration systems and the lengths that restaurateurs are going to to prepare for indoor dining. So I want to hear more about that. And then we are going to talk a little bit about what else is going on uh, between the the tragic burning of the restaurant at Meadowood uh, because of the California wildfires, um, and then some silly stuff that is that is also happening. But uh, first, here is Gary He. Gary He, welcome to uh, the podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm back. You're back. You ate at La Bernadette last night, first night of indoor dining in New York City. Please tell us all about it. Well, I'm not a food critic, but uh, it, that, that part was pretty good, uh, as to be expected. He's a three Michelin star chef, and he's, uh, he's been in the game for uh, several decades uh, at that high level. Uh, so no need to uh, go over that. Uh, in terms of all the safety precautions involved with the first night of indoor dining, um, he had uh, two types of uh, hand sanitizer upon walking in uh, and a temperature check, which I think is a little bit performative, but you kind of have to do it anyway these days. Yeah. Um, and he had all his tables spaced out. Now, his space, I believe, can hold uh, upwards of 200 people uh, if you count uh, sort of the different levels. And so he's maxed out at 59 people in the main dining room. But even so, it's a pretty large space, and so people were uh, pretty spaced out um, inside the Lebrunadin dining room, and all the servers had masks on, so that felt pretty good. Um, overall, I feel like you know, sitting in a room like that, 
you quickly fall back into old habits and you kind of forget that there's a pandemic going on, which mm-hmm. I'm not sure if it's a good or bad thing. <laughs> yeah, I know. I think, you know, we've kind of talked about it on here, but there is the 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 kind of the super upscale restaurants do have somewhat of a competitive advantage in this time. Obviously, they're insanely expensive, so it depends. They have to have people who are willing to pay the price. But uh, these restaurants are functioning at 25 percent of their occupancy or of their maximum capacity. The thing is, for these like tasting menus, we're talking about the fire code. So. 25% of the fire code in some cases is actually what they would be running at full capacity. So is that, is that the case there or like, did it feel like it was more spaced out than it typically was, or is it just business as usual inside? Uh, someone there told me that they pulled about seven tables, but it isn't like 25% of the number of CTs high end places. They're going to want to space their guests out really anyway. So it's not, um, I don't, I don't think you're going to see a restaurant that had 10 tables all of a sudden go to about three tables. Did they or anyone else that you've been kind of reporting on have um, barriers or any any new... Any partitions? Uh, yeah, so anything there's uh, two things out? that they did. Um, one is the partitions in between uh, these kind of uh, tables that could not be more than six feet apart. Uh, but they're still about like five, five and a mm-hmm. half feet. That's pretty close to six. But I think out of an abundance of caution, he's kind of thrown up these barriers which I, I think help, uh, I mean, for uh, kind of your mental well-being if you're sitting in a room like that. Uh, the other thing he did was install a uh, high-tech uh, uh, ionizer, bipolar ionizer thing, the same one that's installed in the White House and at the Google headquarters hmm. uh, that kind of shoots these particles, these charged particles into the air, and they're supposed to kind of capture all the mold and dust and viruses, like um, trap them keep them together so they're bigger. So when they pass through the air filter in the HVAC system, they get caught more easily. Uh, so, and that right. cost a couple of thousand dollars. Uh, for- and they're not recirculated. Correct. And was that the case at other, at these other fancy restaurants that you've been talking to? I feel like um, most of these restaurants have done one thing or another, which is either install UV lamps, which uh, kind of kill the virus once it comes in contact with the light uh, for a while. And, mm-hmm. uh, According to a scientist that I spoke to, uh, UV technology has kind of been used since like the 1930s and has been proven uh, for kind of virus control. And so uh, some yeah. of the restaurants install that. Other restaurants install this uh, ionizer technology, which is uh, less proven, but I, I imagine in certain uh, lab testings uh, uh, and lab situations, they uh, figured out that it does work. Mm-hmm. Um, what the state uh, recommends is, uh, or actually mandates if you have an HVAC system, is to go to the highest uh, possible MERV level uh, that you can. Uh, that's oh, like a, that that's a rating for uh, a filtration system. And so uh, a regular window yeah. air conditioner is at one, whereas a clean room would be 20. And uh, hospitals are generally around 16, 17 if you're in an operating theater. And so 13 is kind of the recommended number uh, that they recommend restaurants hit. Now, if you have an older air conditioning unit or an older HVAC system, that suction is not going to be able to get the air through a MERV 13. Sorry, how much are these investments costing people? Uh, the guys over at Crown Chai told me that their Atmos uh, bipolar ionization installation for both the Crown Chai space and Saga, which is a, a restaurant they intend to open uh, in about uh, anywhere from three to six months from now, 
uh, that costs about forty thousand dollars. Their their ceilings are uh, really high, and it's a, like a really large space, so that accounts for uh, the extra costs involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Mm. And a lot of a lot of times, even with the UV insulations, yeah. you know, it'll be a couple thousand bucks because uh, whoever the handyman is marking it up. And uh, what was the, what was the vibe in the restaurant like? Were were could you tell that some people were more kind of trepidatious than others, and were some people just like so freaking uh, ready for it? Uh, everyone was extremely comfortable, as as if there wasn't a pandemic going on. And I, I get why, right? A lot of these people, a lot of the people that were inside Le Bernardin last night, they spent the summer in Long Island, in Connecticut, uh, where they've had indoor dining either at twenty five or fifty percent pretty much the entire summer, right? Mm. And so they have a comfort level from doing it the entire summer. Uh, and so I didn't see any trepidation whatsoever. It was as if the pandemic wasn't even happening outside. And so I, I get it. You know, if, if you've been doing it for a while, like it, it, it's the same thing with outdoor dining, right? When outdoor dining first started, there was a lot of hesitation among people who had kind of lived through New York City from March to June. And then, you know, by the end of the summer, you, as you can see outside from the pictures, like, you know, it's, it's a party out there without that many cases. So I feel like eventually people will find this middle ground uh, where they're comfortable with it while still being safe. Yeah. But no one was wearing masks, mm-hmm. which is uh, something I took issue with, but maybe because I haven't stayed in even- Long Island the entire summer. Uh, but uh, even talking to servers, uh, there's not a single guest except for me that uh, kept their mask on, which I guess is common practice. Wow. Yeah, I, I believe it's common practice uh, all over the Northeast and really all over the country. Um, and some places get spikes and other places don't get spikes. And, and the research on this isn't really that great, except that it increases the risk, obviously. Uh, so it remains to be seen like how restaurants are going to tackle the issue and how comfortable servers are with serving people that just leave their masks on the entire meal. But it's, it's a thing that's going to happen. That's it's crazy to me because in so many outdoor restaurants I've been to, even they tell you, please put your mask up when the server approaches. So if you're if they're not even telling you that inside, that seems a little reckless. Yeah, but like I said, I feel like everyone who was there are veterans of indoor dining. Not that yeah. being a veteran they of indoor care. dining makes you any less susceptible to getting uh, COVID nineteen. No. Uh, but I just feel like the the comfort mm. level is a lot higher. Whereas some friends who I've shown the pictures to, you know, they they start freaking out because they've been in New York City the entire time and they don't really have that kind of exposure to uh, to people dining indoors without masks on or even dining indoors in general. In New York, it's almost a sign of respect to just overdo it with masking. Like even if it's a windy day and you're on the street far away from someone, you still put it up just to like a sign of respect. Yes, I, like I I'm being careful. That's true. I mean. Gary and I had dinner and we were probably a quarter mile from any other humans and he was wearing his mask and I couldn't hear a word he was saying because <laughs> the wind was blowing so hard. So I can I can attest to that. Yeah, Gary's Janine, a very respectful guy. Yeah, Janine was not wearing his mask because uh, he's from Toronto or spent most of the time in Toronto, which is uh, a barbaric. Uh, you got to get used to the New York I'm culture. on the mask game. I'm just saying once we sat down. I'm back in it. Okay, it was a it was a it was a rare slip up. I think one of the things that I've heard from talking just talking to people is that it's like the learning curve for servers and for you know waitstaff restaurant teams because like I talked to a bar owner in uh, in Williamsburg around me who is, operates like a really busy place and he's like for the first month we were doing kind of our indoor outdoor dining on this patio thing we just like we decided we wouldn't 
push it too hard when people were sitting at the table because it just created so mm -hmm. much unnecessary or not unnecessary tension, but it just created so much tension. And he's like, and it just got to the point now where we say, put on your mask. And if they don't do it, we give them like one strike. And then we're like, you're going to have to leave. And, and it, it's not, he's like, it's not about hospitality anymore. It's about, uh, the priority is for people when they're in our space to wear our mask, wear the mask. And that, that comes before anything else that comes before worrying about an awkward conversation. So who knows, maybe Bernadette will start ramping up their indoor mask usage, but I agree. But also, you know, if, if, if Eric's having a conversation with his staff and the comfort level is pretty good because the, he, they believe that the kind of clientele that comes in perhaps doesn't have as much exposure to the virus or that their aerofilter filtration uh, system that they've spent thousands of dollars on is like really good. You know, if, if as a team, they decide like, okay, this is too much of a burden. Uh, for the level of service that we're trying to provide, um, you know, who, who's to say that they should or should not be doing it? Uh, I, I leave it to the staff, but I hope they're having those kind of conversations. That is such a funny concept to think about the idea that like, well, if this is a rich enclave, their rates of positivity are actually very low. Therefore, we're going to be less concerned versus working at some bustling bar out in like Crown Heights. Yeah, that's also why I decided to uh, dine there on the first night, in addition to it being like ostensibly the best restaurant in New York. It's like, you know, if you're if you're going to take risks, people who have a, a ton of money who get uh, tested on the regular are uh, probably the people that you want to be around. Well, Gary, thank you for being out there reporting on this stuff. Um, if you guys want to check out more of Gary's work, Gary, please plug your newsletter. Oh, yeah. Uh, I report on fancy restaurants uh, in addition to doing stuff for Eater, of course. Uh I have a newsletter called Astrolabe, uh, A-S-T-R-O-L-A-B-E on Substack, uh, or just follow me on Instagram and the link's there, Gary He. Very excellent. I highly recommend. Thank you so much, Gary. Peace out. Thank you. Okay, Daniel. So we talk a lot about the third-party delivery platforms. You know them well. Uber Eats, Postmates, DoorDash, et cetera. Uh, Grubhub, Seamless. One of their big strategies that drives restaurateurs batty is that they will partner with restaurants without their consent. This has become such a popular practice that Grubhub slash Seamless caved and started doing it like a year or two ago because everyone else was doing it. And they publicly said, this is a race to the bottom. This is a terrible idea. This is a bad experience, but we feel like we have to do it because everyone else is doing it. We're going to partner with restaurants without their consent because we're going to get crushed otherwise. Right. Daniel, do you want to give a background on, on what working with restaurants without their consent means? Sure, yeah. So, I mean, I guess it's essentially if you have their consent, a uh, restaurant calls one of the providers, they'll come in, you know, take photos, set you up with a tablet, process the orders, uh, you know, and they take a big cut. Uh, without consent means um, I'm one of the delivery apps. I just ingest some random restaurant's menu into my app. It gives people the opportunity to order from that restaurant. They do it, I send my delivery people, they pick up the food uh, and the people get their food, but this is not with the consent of the restaurant. So the restaurant doesn't know that they're being um, sold through a third party app. They don't like it because it, first, I mean, they don't want, for a bunch of different reasons, but they don't want their food traveling without knowing that it's traveling. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't want to. Well, they want to be able to control the price of their food. So mm -hmm. sometimes a company like DoorDash might discount the food 
um, just to get more acquisition of customers and the restaurant owners just want control over their brand, over their food. So it's a questionable practice. Restaurateurs do not like it. In California, it is now illegal. They signed into law this week. Uh, they're calling it the Fair Food Delivery Act. Hmm. And these platforms can no longer add non-partner restaurants to their listings. What I find the most interesting thing about this is like DoorDash came out with a statement about how damaging this was and how this would deprive the restaurant industry of all of this business and then deprive delivery workers and blah, 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 and how it was going to damage the industry. Grubhub came out and welcomed the legislation saying it would level the playing field in California because as I noted, they never wanted to do this in the first place, but felt like they had to in order to compete. It is funny that it split the companies that that Grubhub was obviously later to. It's not like Grubhub is below, uh, you know, savage restaurant manipulation. So they were just a little quick on the they were slow on the up to that scam. So yeah. uh, they, they were a little uh, well, they were just bummed. I feel they, like their stance was always we don't want to be savage, but if we have to, we will be. Like yeah. there are no, there's no real moral compass there, but they just feel kind of guilty about it. Where the right. other ones, there's we'd no rather conscious. not do this, but we'd rather you know, twist not our arms. Yeah. <laughs> so relatedly, this is yeah. kind of a fringe story, but it, 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 I feel like you would enjoy it. There's a restaurant. I'll be the judge of that. You know? Okay. All right. Well, you tell me. There's a restaurant that is suing DoorDash because DoorDash listed them on their site as out of delivery range, mm -hmm. uh, even though they were, this was a non-partnered restaurant. So basically you, you sign up, like you're on DoorDash, mm -hmm. you want to order from this place that's like, you know, within your neighborhood. And they say, oh, they aren't delivering to you. Sorry, pick one of these other restaurants. And the restaurant actually was delivering to that area. Yeah. But DoorDash, according to this restaurant, was trying to dissuade people from ordering from them yeah. and instead gearing them towards partner restaurants. Yeah, I mean, this is an obvious version of a thing that happens uh, constantly and, and these delivery apps are like heavily incentivized to do, which is the restaurants that are most efficient, the restaurants that they make the most money from, the restaurants that they have the best deals with, you know, are featured in their, in their top yeah. rotations, in their like, search results in in everything i mean uh like you think like in staff picks there are, there's mm -hmm. just so much curation that i don't know people realize they don't realize it goes into these apps so it's just like you know like amazon they really control the access to these restaurants there's nothing stopping doordash from showing you the same restaurant every time you log on to the app regardless of what you search i mean you see it sometimes you like you'll search thai and then you'll get Joe's Burgers and Fries. And it's right. like, I keep seeing Joe's Burgers and Fries. And no matter what, I'm searching like vegan. But it's just, you know, they have a lot of power to influence your buying decisions. So this one is very much on the surface. They're like, yeah, we don't get the cut we want from you. So we're just going to keep saying you're out of delivery range or like you're too busy. Yeah. Um, but I think what's scary about this is all of the damage that they're doing to restaurants by not being... Uh, having incentive to be perfectly fair to the restaurants in the surrounding area. I do understand it from the position of efficiency, right? Like 
you know, restaurants that are slow and don't do a good job of coordinating with the drivers and make their whole web, their whole infrastructure run slower. Mm -hmm. uh, I understand why they would kind of deprioritize those places. Like it, it makes sense, but it's just, I guess it's just an important thing to remember that they have so much power in deciding what gets eyeballs and what doesn't. Yeah, absolutely. And they could leave that up to the ratings. Like I could go in and see like, oh, this place gets only has three stars because maybe they're slow, blah, blah, blah. But do you have to just bury them mm -hmm. or say that they're unavailable? That seems obscene. But just noting this is, and they're alleging this. We don't know if it actually happened. And yeah, it's, it's one restaurant, but I wouldn't put it past them. No. Or, you know, I mean, maybe it wasn't malicious, but they don't go back and make sure that that restaurant has their shit together because they're not as quick to answer their customer service yeah. calls. All right. Next up on the show, we have Eve Beatty here, our San Francisco editor, to talk about the devastating wildfires uh, that are ripping through California and some major restaurant world losses. Eve, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So we are a few weeks into fire season, and it's been pretty brutal. Or that's probably an understatement. So tell us what's going on. It has been pretty brutal. Um, we had a couple pretty major wildfires, both um, to the north, south, and vaguely east of San Francisco, which is where I am earlier uh, this season. Those did not have an immediate impact on restaurants that our listeners are probably that familiar with. But a new fire broke out uh, very early, uh, just past uh, Sunday, the 27th in the morning. And uh, by the end of the day on Monday, it had destroyed, I think about, you know, somewhere around 20 wineries. More numbers are coming in as people are sort of returning to the area. And uh, the restaurant at Meadowood, which is a Michelin starred restaurant that I think probably everyone's at some point or another. What has the you know, the chef Chris Costow or the ownership said about, I don't know, what happened and if they plan to rebuild or what they're, what they're thinking right now. The family that owns Meadowood is eager to rebuild. But, you know, the question that a lot of people have posed is how willing is someone to do expensive rebuild of this, you know, sort of complicated project and potentially have it burned down again, you know, next year. How do you ensure something like that? That in and of itself is becoming more and more difficult in these areas that are known for wildfires. So, um, wait, what is the insurance like? Oh, well, I mean, in a lot of places, you just can't get it. It's similar to like, I'm sure that there are places like, you know, on the East Coast where you now know it's going to get flooded. And so insurance companies are like, yeah, sorry, you made this decision. You're, um, Primarily, right now, the issue is residential. There are a lot of people, if they choose to build a home in the area, insurance companies are like, you're on your own. But I think a lot, especially given the pressures that are on the insurance industry with, uh, you know, these unrelated issues with business interruption claims, you know, regarding COVID-19, I think that the industry is going to get tougher and tougher. If you're a new place now and you try to get a new insurance policy, it's going to be rough. So what was the fallout from this restaurant burning down? I mean, <laughs> it's like a tragedy amongst a, in a time of tragedy that kind of, as you said, came out of nowhere. But it seemed like even though there's so much going on in the world, a lot of people took the time to say how 
how awful this was. Oh yeah. If you just go to the, um, the Meadowood location tag on Instagram, which is, you know, what I did, uh, you'll see that like, you know, that there are literally thousands of people who are saying, mm-hmm. I remember this, I had, I, I had this anniversary here. I had this birthday here. And then in between that are these hugely famous bold-faced names, you know, Dominique Crenn, Thomas Keller, everyone else talking about what a massive loss this is and sharing their personal sort of uh, remembrances too. So it's something that, uh, you know, everyone from like the guy down the street with three followers to some of the biggest names in the world are sort of reacting with that sort of feeling of, I was just there. How is that possible? It's just such a tragic thing because like even if they want to rebuild it, it's his job and the the team's job for the next few years becomes reconstruction, not cooking. To um, think more broadly about the fires, how much longer is this season going to go on for? For those of us who aren't as familiar with, you know, these seasonal outbreaks. Well, that is difficult to say as the climate crisis seems to be accelerating. Um, a weird thing to say and not listening to it on the sci-fi show. Like, I will say in my experience, I've lived in California for 23 years now, that every year the fire season seems to get a little longer on both ends. I live right by the ocean where it's almost always cold. It is so hot and so dry right now. Right now, this year, I think if we're lucky, we'll be out of it by Thanksgiving. That's what happened last year. But Mm -hmm. the weather is so different here compared to how it was a few years ago that it's really difficult to say. Sheesh. Bummer. Well, I know. I know. All right. Well, thank you, Eve. Thank you so much. Amanda. All right. Next up, I have two uh, kind of actually fun stories for you. Actually, very fun. All right. Fun stories. Yes. Yeah. About uh, just to wrap us up for the week about some health stuff. Okay, first up, the headline from SF Chronicle, Berkeley bans junk food requires healthy options at grocery checkout. Grocery stores can't have junk food at checkout or at all. Okay, yeah, reading from Chronicle, the city council of Berkeley, California, passed an ordinance preventing grocery stores from stocking candy and soda in checkout lines. Grocery stores larger than uh, 2,500 square feet cannot sell products with more than five grams of sugar, added sugar, or 250 milligrams of sodium per serving at checkout aisles. Uh, where junk food is often shelved at eye level of children. It only affects, I think, 12 or something stores in the in the area. What are these? What are these stores? Yeah, Trader Joe's like it's because pharmacies are not affected. ShopRite, a couple just jumbo grocery stores. Is, is is the issue of kids wanting candy at checkout? Is that really the biggest thing that we need to be regulating? That was that's my yeah. First of all, it's just like what a waste of time. Yeah. Of all the problems to be tackling right now, is it the, you know, toddler demanding candy? So, you know, if there are lots of problems, I'd rather tackle one than none at all. My response to that. Uh, Fair. I guess. For me, the big problem here is uh, I think that you know this is affecting twelve grocery stores. I think that the packaging of food um, is one of the most dishonest and, you know, almost corrupt parts of the American food system. So I just think the ability to say anything is healthy and organic and keto and gluten, it's like all this stuff is such horseshit and it is so 
it is so bad for the American people. I mean, um, does it, this, this has nothing to do with it. I mean, yeah, like I don't think that anyone, I mean, ideally no one would be eating this stuff, candy bars, sugars, etc. But I also don't believe in any kind of regulation for it. I think the only thing to me that matters is, is better education and better labeling on products and not being able to skirt the labeling. So I actually agree with you that this seems like like a silly attempt at something that doesn't even really work. If you're buying candy at the grocery store also, you're buying bulk shit. You're buying like big bags of chips. You're buying like, I don't know, M&M's peanuts for 20. I'm not as worried about the one pack at the aisle as I am the big ones in the thing. And also I think the bigger problem is the fact that you get it all at the convenience stores and the CVS and the Walgreens and the pharmacies. So yeah, you know what, fuck this, but also good for you, but also don't regulate it. I don't know, it's a mess. Oh, oh. What do you think? Yeah, no, I'm with you. I just you're with just me on every step of the way. I eh? just yeah, yeah, totally, hundred <laughs> percent. Every turn, every every turn of that argument. Right. Uh, I just don't think it's that big of a deal. And like as a parent, I I think you can control what your kids like. If they really want the candy bar, you can just say no. Like, is it that hard? Do you need to remove it from sight? Out of sight, out of mind, I do feel like is a tactic in the health, in the war against unhealthiness. So, sure. Yeah, I just think as a parent, you're used to controlling what your kid eats and disciplining them and keeping them in line. So it's like, is the temptation so large? Is it, It's for kids, right? That's why they do it. That was just the one line about eye level. I don't know if it, I mean, it. I guess kids are a consideration, but I, I'm not willing to say that the entire ordinance. So it seems like we have two issues. One is that like, what is quote unquote candy or junk food yeah. versus what is quote unquote health food. And then like, can you not just, you know, let people live and discipline their kids in the way they want and yeah. decide what they want to eat in the way they want. I would have thought though, you know what this, I feel like the people that this actually helps the most is parents because I just feel like a kid is less likely to, be to really want something that they don't see. I just don't think it's that necessary. Like, is our parents so weak that you need to regulate <laughs> grocery store aisles? Like, come on, have a backbone, tell your kid no. Yeah. But wouldn't you rather not have to have the whole conversation? I'd rather not have the grocery store be regulated. I think I agree with you. You know, like, don't regulate my grocery store aisle. It's fine. <laughs> I can make my own choices. I agree with you. Okay. I And like, I'm, ne- I'm the least... I never thought I'd be like taking the libertarian view. No, I respect it. (laughs) Stay out. Yeah. Well, you don't like anyone telling you how to live your life or how to parent. Yeah. (laughs) Anytime I tell you how to parent, you're very upset. (laughs) You never tell me how to parent. (laughs) Um, On a somewhat related note, because it has to do, that doesn't have to do with health exactly, but um, there was uh, an interesting ruling coming out of uh, Ireland actually. Oh, I heard about this yeah. where they said Subway sandwiches aren't really bread because they have so much sugar in them. Yeah. So there is the VAT tax um, that the restaurant pays on food that they sell. And uh, in Ireland, I actually don't know what it is here, but in Ireland, you pay 0% for co- foods that are quote unquote staple foods, bread being a staple food. And there was a ruling that got all the way up to the Supreme Court uh, where uh, a subway was trying to claim that their bread was a stable food and they shouldn't be charged tax on it. 
the court decided that bread shall not exceed 2% of the weight of flour in sugar and Subway's bread has a 10% <laughs> ratio, which saying it out loud does seem like a hell of a lot of sugar in bread. Yeah. So my question I, for my favorite libertarian is how do you how do you feel about this? Well, I think it's true. American bread has so much sugar. Yeah. It's so bizarre. Like you look go to buy grocery store bread, it's filled with sugar. Yeah. Yeah. So much weird added sugar and so much that we eat. Like I agree with this. I mean I also don't like regulation in the grocery store, but I do believe in in very heavy regulation uh in the packaging department because I think that yeah. So many companies get away with so much sugar and and things that look healthy. They're, but not, they're not saying they're, they're not, not saying they're you not, can't you're not, they're buy not. the. They're not saying you can't buy the bread. Right. No, no, no. I understand, but I'm totally okay with them not being able to call this bread. I think that's actually yeah. I think it's funny. It's funny, <laughs> yeah. Because like, imagine if in store, like they never would be able to do this. But and what do you want for your? What vehicle would you like your meat on? They say like, what base? Yeah, what, do you <laughs> what want? base? <laughs> It's like, you know, Dairy Queen can't call what they serve ice cream. It's like that. Yeah. What floor and ceiling would you like? <laughs> so, well, Amanda, we have reached the end of another episode of Eater's Digest. We've had ups. We've had downs. Um, we've had regulations. We've had unregulated conversations. We've had really all of it. I just want to thank you. Thank Gary. Thank Eve for joining us today. And uh, we will be back next week with something else um do you want to and if you have thoughts about dining indoors or outdoors or anywhere at all please email us at digest at eater.com okay we'll see you soon